it's just never ending. <laughs> Moving water, it's just like I like I mentioned in that um, meeting greet. You know, I've often, and I, you know, I'm sure like everybody, been fascinated by water and um, the endless, the endlessness of it. Um, I hope it's endless anyway. I hope you don't ever run out of water. Um, the the endlessly transforming, minute difference of patterns of reflections of ripples but also it's movement and it's sound and just like that that's the constant exchange that's always going on while we're sleeping when mm. we've gone before we're born it's just just the fact that it's just kind of constantly been in that movement yeah i lost the thread of where we were going with that but uh the, oh, the, the west coast i'm emily kyle and this is local this is a conversation recorded with Melbourne-based composer and performance maker, Aviva Indy. This episode was recorded in February after Aviva finished her artist-in-residency stay, supported by The Unconformity. Let's start from the beginning. Uh, where did you grow up? Where were you born? Uh, so I was born in Carlton in Melbourne and I haven't moved very far actually. I've travelled the world wildly but um, I've only ever lived in Melbourne now live in Brunswick. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that you were a Melbourne-based artist. I, for some reason I thought you were from Hobart. Ah. I don't. I think that maybe um, I was looking at some of the work on your website and there was some um, Tasmanian stuff there, so yeah. just make the assumption. But that's really cool. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to come down to play at Mona and Dark Mofo quite yeah. a few times. So. That's incredible. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, and what, what was it like growing up in Melbourne? The scene there is pretty, the art scene there is pretty massive. Yeah, I've always found it really inspiring. Um, I think that Melbourne has a really thriving art scene, but particularly music. There's just really interesting things going on in pretty much every part of the, yeah, every genre <laughs> and every part of the scene that you can imagine. So, um Without going very far, I think I've been able to be exposed to a lot of really amazing musicians doing really interesting oh, things. That's so, wonderful. Yeah, it's fun. And um, now I am co-curator as well of an organisation called the Make It Up Club that runs a weekly improvised music night every Tuesday. It's been going for 22 years. Oh, so wow. that's a really interesting kind of um, meeting place for all kinds of musicians around Melbourne to come and, you know, try something in the improvised or experimental realm whether or not that that's their um, primary focus in their normal musical practice and, you know, often try out first-time collaborations and try out new ideas. So that's a really fun place to work. Yeah, and 22 years, there's a bit of a, a legacy Absolutely. there. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Wow. What's your experience been like here as a resident through The Unconformity? Uh, it's been incredible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I don't want to leave. I feel like I haven't been here long enough and I'm just sort of always discovering new places to explore and new people who are leading me on new, you know, in new directions um, with my project. So it's been amazing um, to be invited to a place like this and to feel so welcomed by the community. Yeah. Um, and I feel like people have a lot to share here and a lot of knowledge about the history of the place but also about the landscape and the environment, I feel like it's something that people who live here are really connected with, mm. um, which has been really great for my project because um, it's been a lot about engaging with very specific places and acoustics. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of kind of beautiful secret places that people have shared with me, which has been awesome. 
That's wonderful. Um, Helena told me that you were recently in the mine. Did you go into the mine? Yeah, so two of the fa- my favourite places to play that I've discovered here um, have been two mines, so the Mount Jukes mine, uh, which is very uh, small, underground, gold, I think it's gold, copper, all kinds of things mine, and that's like not very much taller than a person. Uh, so that was really interesting to sort of be surrounded underground by this kind mm. of incredible mass of rock oh. and... Yeah, very particular feeling, but then also the thing that uh, was really exciting to me as a sound artist and musician was, you know, finding the really unique sonic qualities of these different places that I was playing. And in that mine, the thing that was the most striking was this, like, incredible resonant frequency. So when you talk about the resonant frequency of a space, it's like, yeah, the particular frequency that's going to make the whole space just feel like it's vibrating. And um, with the bass clarinet, it was just perfect because it was really responding very well to bass frequencies. So at some point I was in there on my own and wondering whether I was kind of willing my own death by playing this <laughs> note <laughs> repetitively. <laughs> I was like, I wonder if this mind is going to cave in on me. Um, but it's it was really so... fantastic because you could kind of play off that resonance and, and play um, other tones really close to it um, so that you would kind of create beating tones. Sort of started to sound more like electronic music um, and then being able to direct my sound into kind of the sort of different tunnels sort of had different resonant qualities. So um, depending on where I was sort of directing my sound and which pitches I was choosing, I was sort of able to get these really crazy um sort of acoustic phenomenon happening, which was very exciting. Oh, yeah, that sounds incredible. I think it's um, particularly interesting at this time, you going into the mine and doing something creative in that space is really important. Venturing into that space as a witness and an observer and coming but coming from the frame of mind, the art making frame of mind. Yeah. It's really I think interesting. That, that's been really interesting for me as well why I've been here because um, it's obviously such an incredible, rich and beautiful and powerful um, natural landscape. Um, and in many ways it's been affected and, and devastated by the the effects of mining. But I think what's been really interesting for me is actually kind of trying to find the, um, you know, the beauty within that devastation and like, you know, the kind of new, new possibilities that are actually coming out of these spaces which have been so transformed. Yeah, just to try and find a, a, something new in, in that. I don't know, I, it's been kind of interesting for me as well being here, seeing how fast the land actually transforms it's and incredible. the forest how much the forest will take back and reclaim areas um so quickly not to discredit the, the sort of ongoing effects that the mining is going to have on this land and our planet more more broadly but um it has actually been quite hopeful for me this kind yeah. of um experience of just seeing you know a tree managing to forge its way through the the slag or um, going on a walk up to an old dammed area and just seeing how the forest is just, you know, only decades on completely reclaiming the space. Yeah. Um, And I think that that's kind of, you know, in this time, which is, you know, where we're also... um, concerned and devastated about what's going on to the planet it is actually kind of 
really, um, yeah, there's a kind of hopeful quality in that, I think, and I hope that what I'm doing, I, I haven't been able to give it enough thought to really be able to articulate exactly how I think what I'm doing is um, interacting with that, but I, I think that there's something quite optimistic about the yes, whole process, which yes. has been quite fun. Yeah, I get, I get the, I get that feeling um, as well. I, I think that, oh, I, I think that there's this story about the mine, about how it's, um, it's very industrial. It's very, um, it can be really devastating to the land, uh, the mining, and um, that it's a dangerous place to be in. And for you to move into that space and do something and explore that space, be creative in that space, it's almost like an honouring. It's a, it's yeah. seeing it from a completely different point of view and experimenting with it in a completely different way. Hmm. Well, I think that that's something that I'm generally interested in about sound and music practice and a practice of kind of deep listening is the idea of creating sound as a different way of understanding spaces. I think that we tend to be very visually focused, but actually when we can kind of tap into how we listen to a space, like what is going on around us in a give deep attention to that oral sensation, um, it kind of gives us a different way of connecting with the place that's perhaps, um, perhaps just because it's not so immediate in the way that um, your vision is. Mm-hmm. Um, or that you need to spend more time with it. You know, sound is a is a time, you know, it's something that happens in time and, and space. So um, we have to sort of be there and to sort of embody that experience. Um, so in that way, perhaps it offers, a, yeah, just a different way of knowing, mm. understanding a place. So, yeah, I mean, I know for me uh, I, I couldn't have really imagined um, exactly how any of the places that I've been would sound just from looking at them. Yeah. And actually sometimes it, it's gone in the opposite direction. I've sort of, um, there was one place in particular, a massive dam wall that I was so excited when I um, got taken there by Peter. I was looking at it going, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> and um, actually, strangely, there wasn't a particularly noticeable um, reflection or echo from that, you know, which it was very counterintuitive to me. Um, but it was still spectacular to be there and I'm glad I was there. But, you know, it's kind of interesting how um, sometimes how little we know about uh, a sound and acoustics without actually just yes. embodying it and being there. How a space, um, because when you're in a space and you're, you're there, you're introducing something to the area and the area reacts to that introduction, mm. you know, and for there to be almost a non-reaction. Mm. Well, I mean, it's not that there's no reaction. There's always, like, any space, any given space in the entire world has a, a particular acoustic quality. But I guess it's when you're experiencing something that's really um, unusual and I think that that definitely ha- happens in spaces like domes, um, <laughs> absolute favourite of mine. Sometimes there are just these extremely unusual and unexpected uh, reactions that are very specific to a certain place um, in, in a striking way. So, for example, my experience at Mount Duke's Mine uh, at the Bow, where you have the sound like um, multiple reflections happening oh, off all wow. the different sides of this circular open-cut uh, mine. There was another really spectacular place that I found completely by mistake um, up on the hill near the airport up here and um, I started playing and if I was playing very high-pitched sounds, I was hearing 
a completely crisp, clear reflection off the mountains way across the oh, valley. Oh, wow. About four seconds later. And you would hear them like a domino effect going from one mountain bouncing to the next. And it was just extraordinary. I'd never heard that before. Was that so, something you were able to record and capture? I think I might have something. It's interesting, this project, because I've been looking at recording this kind of work and this material, but it's a bit of a new uh, area of my practice, um, sound engineering and recording. So I'm, I'm learning as I go. Certain things I think are very difficult to capture um, because something like that, it's um, just the difference in volume between mm. my um, my playing and the reflection of the sound from so many kilometres away. Um, There's you, a subtlety to it, I, yeah. you know, but I think that you play with that a lot in your work is the, the subtle sounds. Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how something like that could um, be worked with as recorded material. Um, and to be honest, I've just been so busy while I've been here. I haven't done that much listening back and editing through um, oh, yeah. what I've recorded. That's, that's, that's my fun project for when I get <laughs> yeah. home. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see what comes up in a recorded context and, you know, it's kind of interesting to also think about what actually works in the recorded medium and what actually does need to be live performance and experienced um, in, in the space where it's occurring. And I think that it's completely fine to, to think that certain things, um, you know, don't necessarily transfer transfer from one setting to another yes um, yeah because they have their own quality um some things can only be experienced live hmm. that's really special it's really important to recognize yeah yeah so this project is kind of quite um unusual for me in that I've done it is very site-specific and I've done a lot of site-specific work before in performance context um but not so much in a recorded context so my first album solo album that I made was well, actually, every recording I've ever made has always been in a recording studio. Um, oh, yes, yes. So now you're here out in the open in this uncontrolled sort of yeah. area trying to capture as much sound as possible. Yeah, and um, and it is very uncontrolled and, and that's actually kind of what I'm interested in. Um, you know, there are certain sounds that uh, can just be annoying in a recording context like wind blowing on a microphone. Nobody really <laughs> wants to listen to that for any extended period of time. Um, but, you know, those other qualities like that you just, you know, don't know that a cicada might just suddenly start up right next to the left microphone mm. or, you know, a car might, you know, drive down the highway right when you think you're playing your best phrase and, you know, but all of that stuff becomes part of what happened in that moment and, um I think that that's really beautiful and it can really lead to some unexpected results. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think that uh, it also adds this um, quality of realness to it as well. You know, I think sometimes um, when oh, it's difficult to find that balance, isn't it, between um, the unexpected and the real and the quality of sound. If you're, when you're in a studio, you have total control over the sound that you're creating. Um, and then outside you, which is great because you're getting that important sound quality, but then outside of that, you've got all of these things that you can't control and that's really exciting as well, but you might be compromising in sound quality. Mm. And it's like, oh. Yeah, it's been kind of interesting. I have done a little bit of listening back to the playing and it's been quite interesting for me, 
me to realise how much the different places that I've been are sort of directly informing what I play or, um, you know, what I choose to play on my instruments, but even what I can play. Because, um, for example, I was working on a sort of, I was improvising with a certain kind of idea um, at the Iron Blow. And then I went home and I was like, well, I'd really like to get better at that so that I could record it better for next time. And I tried to sort of practice the idea and I just actually couldn't do it at home. Oh, wow. Um, and there was something about that, that kind of the reaction that I needed from that I was getting, the feedback kind of loop that I was getting from the place informing what I was playing that, yeah, felt it made it feel like I, I actually just couldn't do it on my instrument wow, when really I wasn't brutal. there. It's kind of like accessing certain harmonics that, you know, you're sort of hearing the reflection um, really strongly from the acoustic and then that's sort of allowing you to reach those places on your instrument that I couldn't reach just in the lounge room of the place where I was staying. Um, and I think that's really interesting, like when you sort of start to work with a place uh, like that, that's actually teaching me how to play, like that place is teaching me how to play and what to listen for. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm. So when, when you're going out to these places, are you um, improvising what you're playing or do you have an idea of what you might want to play before you go or...? Um, I'm improvising. They're definitely not um, fixed compositions, but I would say that um, I generally, like anybody, uh, I sort of have my um, like sort of language mm. on the instrument, let's say. So I have um, certain modes of playing um, on my instrument, whether that is it's usually um, got to do with limiting a palette to uh, can I ask less. what that means? Uh, just so, so, you know, the clarinet or the bass clarinet can just do, it can play all the notes and it can do all the things. Um, but I tend to be interested in, um, I guess, more minimal music. And so I often kind of pare down what I would choose to use in any one piece or improvisation oh. to much less than that. Um, so that I, I don't know, I just like music like that, I guess. But I also, um, I have a sort of, let's say, sort of toolbox of um, ways of playing that might be kind of like we could call them preparations of the instrument. So, for example, I have um, a very, very small speaker the size of a cigarette packet mm -hmm. um, that I sometimes plug my clarinet into and that sort of um, gives the clarinet a very particular sound that um, kind of like a little very, very, very basic synthesizer sort of has this potential for it to sound kind of distorted or perhaps broken or just gives it a different sound quality. And then so I might choose to do an improvisation just using that. Um, yeah, that comes through um, in different pieces of your work that I've um, looked at and listened to. This is um, abrupt um, moments in in the piece that you're playing and um, and then and all of the beautiful subtleties. The piece that you played at the um, artist talk was stunning. It was, um, there was a, a review of your album. Um, can you remind me what your album's called, please? It's called uh, Cinder, Ember, Ashes. Yes, and it's oh, it's beautiful. Um, the and they, the review was saying something about your work being trance-like. 
Mm. And it really is. I, that, that, I think that that's the best way to describe the experience that I've had with your work. Oh, thank you. It's yeah, I mean, I think that it's kind of interesting, that idea of pairing back your materials um, so that then I guess part of my intention with that is that um, uh, by limiting the materials that you're working with, then you start to focus in on on the variations within that. And I think that's probably the intention of a lot of people who work in sort of drone and ambient music. But, um, you know, in, for example, in the piece that I played at the meet and greet here, it's essentially just uh, a very simple pattern. But then within playing with that sort of fingering pattern, I can kind of, um, you know, dip in and out of different kind of harmonic possibilities and overtones of the instrument. And then you sort of become very in tune with that element. Even watching well. you play though there's something about the um circular breathing the way that your body's moving um sometimes even when as I was watching you it almost felt like the sound was divorced from the the image of you moving with the sound mm-hmm. it, it was it's very and then the sound seems to come back in and it's it's truly incredible. It was a really immersive experience for me. Thank you. Yeah, that's really lovely feedback. Um, I, I like to think that, yeah, the sound can be greater than itself and I think that that's something that I appreciate in all kinds of, um, you know, sounds as well. But I think something that I, I've been really inspired by as well is like, um, you know, animal sounds as well. Like when I was up at that um, same place I was mentioning before on the top of the hill near the car park, um, sorry, not near the car park. <laughs> I say that because it's kind of like a, I've been referring to it as a car graveyard in my um, head where people have gone and dumped all of these cars um, oh, out next to the airport. No, I don't think I've ever seen uh, it. I highly recommend going out there. It's really fun. It's kind of like you feel like you're in the Wild West. Well, we are in the oh, Wild yeah. West. <laughs> um, but it's, um, yeah, like really sort of deserty environment. Um, oh, wow. Beautiful outlook across the hills. And then there's these incredible frogs up there. And that's what I was going to get to, um, you know, the sound that they're creating and between them sort of all around you is so much greater than, you know, what you would imagine if you just see the animal itself, yeah. which, which you don't actually. They're very, um, very shy creatures. Um, <sighs> but the sound, yeah, does become something that's greater than them and just the way that it moves around the space, you know, and then um, so I, I kind of think that that's something that I would like to you know, it's nice to have that feedback because um, that's something I really appreciate in other sort of sounds. So to think that I can do that with my clarinet is very nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, when did you when did you first pick up the clarinet? What's tell me about your love affair with the clarinet? <laughs> well, I actually started playing the clarinet because um, I played the recorder and um, oh, a classic yeah. instrument. Mm-hmm. But. Um, I, unlike most people, absolutely loved the recorder and I thought it was the best and I, in particular I loved my recorder teacher um, and she left at some point to go and study in England and I just refused to learn from any other recorder teacher because I loved her so much. And so I took up the clarinet instead, <laughs> instead of continuing with the new recorder teacher. Um, but, no, I liked the clarinet as well and I, I thought the clarinet teacher, Paling, 
I thought she was pretty cool at my primary school. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I'd, I'd heard clarinet a little bit in the classical context, but I'd also been to this um, very memorable klezmer concert, um, which is kind of Jewish folk music that really heavily features the clarinet. And um, that's part of my family heritage on my mum's side. And I just, it's such a sort of um, part joyous and part mournful kind of sound that, that that is conjured in that music on the clarinet and that really appealed to me. So it took me quite a long time from when I first started learning to actually get into playing that kind of music. Um, but, yeah, it definitely was part of the reason I picked it up. Then moving on to the bass clarinet, which is probably, I probably play even more than the clarinet now. Um, that just opens up a whole other world as well that's been really fun to explore over the last 10 years or so. Yeah. So as someone who doesn't know anything about the clarinet or really any classical instruments, can you describe the experience of playing clarinet versus the bass clarinet? Uh, well, I mean, in many ways they have a lot of, they have more similarities than the differences in terms of the way that the the sound is produced. But um, the bass clarinet, obviously everything is just larger, the instrument is bigger and um it kind of requires like a bit more of a relaxed kind of airstream and, and um, embouchure, the way you create the shape of your mouth. So in some ways I guess I would say I find it more relaxing to play, even though it's sort of on some level more effort um, and takes more air, for example. But it's a powerful instrument, you know, the bass clarinet. It feels really like strong and but it also has this amazing ability to be extremely soft and um has this extremely kind of intimate side as well. Um, a lot of my favourite sounds to play in the bass clarinet are actually only available at an extremely soft dynamic range. Um, so it's still sort of just like breathing in this most uh, gentle airstream. And, um, yeah, because of that actually I one of the first works that I ever made was this piece called Intimate Sound Immersion, which was mostly came from that intention of like being able to share that part of the instrument with people that's only so soft. I wanted to kind of create a context where I could play at that level for someone and them almost have the feeling of like what it is to feel, how it feels to play the bass clarinet for myself. Um, so what I did in that piece was I, um, it was just for one person at a time and they were blindfolded and I was able to, because they were blindfolded, sort of um, play extremely close to them so sometimes right in front of their face or um, right behind their back and um, sort of work with how the sound was um, being experienced by them so that was a really fun piece it's incredible. still actually probably my favorite thing to do <laughs> oh wow yeah it's um very special oh that's amazing I'm just really oh, soaking in that for a moment imagining what that would be like Oh, I'll come back and do it. <laughs> you know what I was thinking is that perhaps I should just say something because I feel like we just went straight into talking about the project but I never really said what the project is. Yeah, sure, go so. <laughs> yeah. Can you describe the project, please? Uh, yeah, so I've come to Queenstown um, as part of a recording project. So I've been working here on playing my... Um, instruments, which are mostly clarinet, bass clarinet and other winds, um, within and alongside sort of uh, very specific sonic environments and acoustics. So before I came here, I didn't really know what I was going to find, but um, Queenstown and its surrounding areas kind of 
it sort of inspired my imagination as a place where I imagined there'd be um, a lot of, you know, really sheer rock faces and, and mines, like both natural and um, man-made uh, kind of amazing acoustic spaces. But also I was interested in um, the sort of existing sonic environments that um, I might find here with, you know, um, frog and insect and bird life and um, the sounds of the forest here um, and trying to find a way to play my instruments um, that invited those sounds to be part of the, the world that was being recorded. Yeah. I, when I, I get back to the um, meet and greet, um, you were so open to suggestions from other people, from um, people living in Queenstown about where to go to um, play or um, experiment or find these sounds. And I'm sitting I'm sitting there thinking, I, I really wanted to tell you about it, but there's a possum that lives in my room. Oh, really? And it's always, it's all I could think about when you said, oh, if anyone has any suggestions of where I can find sounds. This possum is always, so I've got this pressed tin ceiling and it's all, um, it, it's all wonky, different angles. And she, I, I've decided she's a girl. Um, she hops in through this open space that's on the other side of the house. And she climbs in and you can hear her rustling and then sliding <laughs> down through the roof. And then and sometimes those um, those screams that they do, those big, well, I won't do it into the microphone, but um, and uh, the sound used to terrify my son and I, the only way we could get over it is um, or move through that fear is that I said to him that um, it's a possum that lives in the roof, everything's okay, she's making that sound because she's protecting us. And he really took that on board and now he views it when he, he is her rustling around in the roof yeah. or when she's crying out. It's um, this really protective force for him. Yeah. And it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting sound. Oh, Yeah. I mean, the way we experience sounds is absolutely so subjective and based on our own, like, memories and, mm. yeah, history with sounds. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of beautiful things here that I, you know, I'm sure I haven't, I could come back and spend so much more time. Well, how long has the residency been? Uh, 12 days. Oh, gosh. Just it's under two so weeks. so short, yeah. isn't it? Mm. I, I could have stayed longer and I um, possibly should have, but. Yeah, the other thing that's been interesting about working here and working on this project is the um, unpredictable weather. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Next time I'm definitely, like, going to try and figure out how to um, waterproof my recorders and stuff. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've probably got only about half, less than half of that of days to record outside. But fortunately I found the mine so I could yeah. make good use of that on the rainy days. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a kind of really... Uh, it's a wonderful thing about this place, but I think it's yeah. perhaps something I wasn't quite well equipped for. <laughs> no. Oh, no. There's so much water and it's such an amazing thing when so much of the rest of the country is so dry and, you know, running so out of water. It's such a beautiful believe. resource, but it's um, it's actually you have to be quite well prepared for it, I it's think. Very, it can be very inconvenient. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny because a couple of weeks before you came here, um, we had a, a run of 
couple of weeks of just perfect, perfect weather. Wow. And so it's it really is unpredictable. You can't know, you know, mm. to be sitting here in summer and it's cold and we're all rugged up. It's just but then you'll have this gorgeous day, this incredible, the best summer day. Yeah. It's um the weather's very changeable. Yeah, I'm interested to see how that works with the festival um, in October. And, you know, oh, it's amazing. People so it's just, you know, if it's raining and there's mud, people come, they don't care. Everything yeah. everything is alive and they're involved in it and everyone's just really rugged up and when you buy an art piece, you're, it's, you're sort of double-wrapped. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's really incredible to see um that people that don't live here um, and don't know about the weather um, to come and get involved regardless. Mm. That's really cool. Mm. That's awesome. Um, I'm thinking this is is probably a little bit off topic but there was an installation piece at the last Unconformity um, that reminds me a little bit of your work, your Work can be um, sound, it's sound, uh, but it's also in some ways part installation, part performance, you know, the, um, the things that I've seen online anyway. Um, I can't remember who the artist was, but she, it was this really small area. I'm just thinking of it now. Um, it's next to Studio 1880, you know, Gary's shop on the corner where the empire mm-hmm. is, there's this little door next to, you have to duck right down to get in there. Uh-huh. It's next to his studio space and um, it's almost like, and it's all closed in. I think it, it might be um, concrete and brick. And uh, she hung this piece that was all um, toffee, looked like this big chandelier, and as it sort of rotated around the toffee, it would come melt down. Or the caramel would melt down onto the ground. It was this really sticky, beautiful installation piece. I can't, that, that space, it was really, it was this really tight space like mm. like the mine but in, um, um, but in this historic building. I want to go see it. Maybe it's I can really, do my intimate sound immersions there I, in the festival. Yes, it's a really, <laughs> it's a really funny space. One of those ones that you have to, um, you become very aware of your own body moving into the space, and it's very dark and awesome. it's a really interesting space. Mm. Um, How big do you think? How many meters do you think it is? Oh gosh. Like it's as long as this table? Oh no. Um, maybe this, like this, with a little alcovey bit just here. And I think the ceiling's a bit low and you really have to oh, wow. duck into. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool. <laughs> I wonder what it was. Maybe some kind of storage. Yeah, I imagine probably just storage. Yeah, but um, yeah. Uh, will you be coming back for the unconformity this year? Yeah, I'm hoping to come back um, as a and to perform something. Um, it's still to be confirmed, but um, regardless, I think I'll be back. Oh, that's wonderful. That'd be wonderful. What else do you have planned for this year? Um, I have a little European 
tour coming up, solo solo tour, which will be really fun um, playing in some different parts of Scandinavia and in Poland, some nice um, experimental music festivals. Um, And so that should be really good. And um, hopefully doing a residency up in Fitzroy Crossing in the Kimberley uh, working um, with sound and some of the community up there. Um, I did a tour through the Kimberley last year with a group called Tura. Um, and it was just amazing, such beautiful country. I'd never been up there before and sort of fell in love, similar to my experience here, you know, wow. um, getting to go to these parts of the country that so many people don't get to see. And uh, it was really special. So I'm hoping to get to go back there and um, spend a bit more time with the community and up there. Um, yeah, they're some of the big projects. Yeah, that's incredible. Wow. Um, I wanted to ask, I remember the question I wanted to ask you earlier. Um, going from, so your work is quite experimental. It's very it's very different to anything I've ever heard before. How did you go from learning to play the clarinet in primary school, which I imagine is a pretty structured um, experience, to what you're doing now? How did you get from A to B? Uh, that's an interesting question. So I was always playing classical music. Um, that was kind of what I studied. And then I was always playing as well folk music on the side, sort of starting out of uh, the klezmer that I mentioned earlier. And then, um, you know, that developed into sort of uh, more interest in like Eastern European, Balkan music, Greek music. Wow. Um, and I was often playing in bands on the side. So I sort of had that folk music way into, you know, arranging with a band or, um, you know, Im- improvising within a limited sort of structure um, of that music. And then I had bands playing original music as well throughout my whole high school and uni. Um, but then I would say it was probably when I started to get into um, a more experimental avant-garde uh, classical music, so when composers were working with a lot of graphic scores and aleatoric um, potential within the music so there'd be sections where it was at the discretion of the performer uh, how they would interpret the parameters that were set out um, and that was kind of really my introduction to improvisation uh, and then from there I got really interested in the sort of free improvisation uh, community which is um, you know kind of what I would still loosely term my work as um, and I got a really great introduction to that through um, the Creative Music in Institute which was a, a summer school that I went to in Canada out of the blue and got to work with some of uh, the absolute greats of free improvisation sort of as an introduction which is pretty amazing so musicians like Evan Parker and Gary uh, Barry Guy and it was run by still one of my favorite planet players Francois Hull um, so that was just a really great dive into the deep end and then from that point it's just always um, been really interesting for me just, you know, really it's really just the simplest thing, people playing music uh, without any instruction um, with other people. So It sounds simple. I mean it's it sounds, I think that a lot of people, myself included, get hung up on trying to be perfect Um do you know, I know with my drawings, when I first started drawing, it was really difficult to allow myself to to free up a little bit. I've always been very rigid. Um, 
And I think a lot of people do feel that way that they learn a piece of music and there's safety in knowing what they need to play mm. um, and how to play it. And what you're doing is just ultimate freedom. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, there I can. I mean, I still. Yeah, you know? I, I, mean, I still have my ideas about what I like the sound of and what I don't, and I um, definitely have moments of playing something that you know I don't like. I <laughs> it's not going to end up on my next record. You know, um, it's not like everything is. Um, you know, I, there's still a kind of process of um, you know the development of your aesthetic sense or um, you know a <laughs> kind of. Um, distilling of an idea that still happens in free improvisation just like in any other music um but the thing is that I really really like about it is that it's been a really amazing way to connect with people all over the place so um just this particular um I mean it is it is a kind of scene and it is an aesthetic but um what I've really noticed is that I'm I've been able to collaborate with musicians from all different kinds of musical cultures and, um, you know, cultural backgrounds as well, that there's kind of, you sort of develop an intuitive way of connecting with people and connecting with other kinds of music. Um, and I think that that's just been a really great way to get to know the world and people and um, I'm very, very thankful for that. But, you know, having said that, I'm sure lots of people would um hate what I'm playing <laughs> and would think it's all wrong notes. So, <laughs> Oh, well, they're probably wrong. <laughs> the collaboration seems to be a really big, important part of your work as well. You know, there's when I was going over your site that you've got so many instances of collaborating. Um, well, I mean, I think it is a really big part of my process for sure, collaborating with people I've always really enjoyed that and I, I think does it help you push your boundaries when you're collaborating with other people yeah I mean I think playing in new context you always discover new things like just in the way that I was talking about you know certain environments and um acoustic spaces sort of opening up new ways for me to play it's the same with when you're playing with new people um or developing an old collaboration further you you sort of find new elements of your own practice that you probably wouldn't find otherwise um so, yeah, I've certainly been very lucky to play with a lot of musicians and I think that's something that's a really beautiful part of being able to be a musician as an artist. I think we're quite lucky that we get to work with um, lots of people and collaborate with friends quite regularly. And this project's kind of been interesting because even though I've actually been struggling with how to talk about it because it's sort of on the one hand it seems like a solo project but it doesn't really feel like a solo project. It feels like a collaborative project with space and um, with existing sonic environments. And it's something about music that is, it's, it almost seems like it's always a collaboration even though even when it is a solo project because you're, even in the previous work when you're talking about the, those um, really low notes and having the person blindfolded and you, that wouldn't that experience wouldn't exist without the other, mm -hmm. you know, and so yeah, it's about sharing with that audience member. And I think that thinking about um, the way that the audience is engaging with the work or trying to at least give it some consideration, it has always been um, really important to me. Um, I'm always thinking about that, even 
in what might can seem like a fairly conventional performance context, like of, you know, a stage and a seating bank, which is something I rarely do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm always trying to think about like how how is it going to feel to be in that position? How, how are you going to be able to engage with the sound? Um, what are the elements, what are the sensors are being kind of activated in, or stimulated in this space? So, yeah. But the other thing about collaboration is, I mean, I'm very much of the opinion that we don't, you know, creative ideas are not, they're not ideas of the individual, like all of all creative ideas or all ideas generally, I feel like there is there is a greater context that is allowing these ideas to come to fruition and to be realised perhaps by an individual but they're not, ideas don't belong to any one person. They're mm. sort of part of a collective uh, consciousness, I yes, think. So I love that. You know, I think that that's how societies work and, and so there is that kind of collaboration on that bigger and deeper level as well. Which is why I think that a residency like um, The Unconformity is so fantastic because they really act, you know, the organisation has has really considered that, I think, and um, really brings the community into the work. I couldn't mm-hmm. have made any of this work without um, not only the places that I've been but the people who have been here who have shared their thoughts and their ideas and it sort of just um, aids this development of ideas um, you know, that comes from everybody here. It might result in the work that I'm going to record, but I don't think that I can take full ownership of of that work in that way. <laughs> sure, that sounds too esoteric. I don't think no, that it is at all. No, I mean, I just think that we're in a um, we're in we tend to in our society like place a lot of importance on the individual and um the achievements of the individual, but I think that a lot is being overlooked in terms of um, the kind of support Mm. mechanisms and, um, yeah, the collective that is feeding into that. You can't just look at a product or an end result and say that's that and and that be the only thing that you're looking at or considering. Mm. It's everything that comes before that and after that. Mm. um, It doesn't just exist in its own Mm little space it's interesting that you mentioned that about this idea of like the before and the after because that's something that I've been thinking about a lot while I've been here is um just a greater sense of time Mm. so for example when I was playing at uh, Nelson Falls you're sort of working with this sound of the waterfall and I was kind of finding my way into that and finding what I wanted to play but it's kind of mind-blowing when you start to think that that waterfall has been creating those sounds mm. so far back into the future and will continue making those sounds so far, sorry, so back into the, far back into the past and so far out into the future and it's kind of like that sound is just stretching out in both directions just in just an almost unimaginable length of time compared to the amount of, you know, the few hours that I was there and listening to it and trying to play with it. So it's kind of, it's very humbling in that sense of like also then thinking about that in relation to like the amount of time that humans will be able to interact with that waterfall. It's it's nothing. It's actually so insignificant in the story of that and the sound of that waterfall. Um, And I, I think that that's a nice thing to think about, you know, 
it, it could make someone feel really small and insignificant, but um, for me it's actually just a beautiful thing to think about. Yes. Yes, it's something so much greater. And that sort of comes back to when we, you were talking about the frogs, that the sound is so much greater than what you can see and that there's this quality of this bigness, this this thing that, oh, that we can't possibly capture mm. in in the one, in the in the final. It's, yeah, that's... That's really thoughtful. That's mm. really interesting. It really, um, there's an awareness that happens. Uh, I am here now. I mean, water is amazing like that. It's just never ending. <laughs> Moving water, it's just, like I like I mentioned in that um, meet and greet, you know, I've often, and I, you know, I'm sure like everybody been fascinated by water and um, the endless the endlessness of it. Um, I hope it's endless anyway. I hope we don't mm. ever run out of water. Um, the the endlessly transforming, minute difference of patterns, of reflections, of ripples, but also its movement and its sound, and just like that, that's a constant exchange that's always going on while we're sleeping, when mm. we've gone, before we're born. It's just just the fact that it's just kind of constantly been in that movement. I think is really and beautiful. And in our bodies, existing in our bodies as well. Um, yeah. Well, is there anything? Oh God, we've been recording for ages. Sorry. That's okay. Is there anything that you that you want to say about your oh, experience here, or um, anything that you want to convey that you feel you haven't? I just want to say a massive thank you to everybody from the Unconformity and from Queenstown generally, and for this place for like being able to be here um yeah it's just been amazing everybody should come and explore the west of tasmania <laughs> respectfully <laughs> oh yeah. thank you so much for doing this with me aviva My pleasure this was local the podcast is produced by carter pierce and myself digital media is produced by tess gilfetter Our artwork was made by Gigi Gortz. The podcast is funded in part by the Regional Arts Fund and the Unconformity Festival. Also then thinking about that in relation to like... For more information on the podcast and its guests, please go to localthepodcast.com or localthepodcast on Facebook and Instagram.